And if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, if you're looking in one of the few Bibles, page 1005, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark and uh, looking at who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. And today, uh, Jesus is particularly teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. So let's read this passage together. Uh, or I'll, be, I'll read it. You can follow along with me. Uh, Mark, Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, that's Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What kind of church ought we to be. Now, if you go out and ask different people, what kind of church would you want to be part of, or what kind of church do you think the world most needs, you'll probably get a couple of different answers. Some people would say that above all else, the church should be characterized by humility. They would say, the church has made many mistakes in the past, and it's important for the church to own up to those mistakes. 
Also, our culture around us is divided and tribal. People are mean and unkind. And therefore, the church should prioritize being loving and caring, being kind and generous, being humble and servant-hearted. That's the kind of church that this world most needs. Now, other people would respond differently. They would say, humility is okay, but what Christians really need these days is boldness and holiness. The world around us is morally corrupt, people rejecting God's ways, living just to please themselves. Christians need to stand up for what is right and proclaim the truth without compromise and live according to the Bible's teachings, even if they are unpopular and misunderstood. Amen. So, should the church strive to be humble, or should the church strive to be holy? You can find churches that emphasize one or the other, that emphasize humility but seem to lack holiness, or emphasize holiness but seem to lack humility. And if we're honest, I didn't ask anyone to respond, but if you were honest, some of you would probably have said yeah to the first one, and some of you would probably said yeah to the second one. And we're all sitting here in the same room today. Right? What do we prioritize here at TCC? Well, I think, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us to simply follow our own personal instincts and opinions in this matter. In the passage we just read, Jesus tells us what he thinks is important for his followers. Now, when you first read this section, it can feel a little bit like a laundry list of various assorted teachings on various assorted topics. Uh, but if you look more closely, I think the first half of this passage is all about humility and the importance of uh, Jesus' disciples pursuing humility. And the second half of this passage is all about holiness, the importance of Jesus' disciples pursuing holiness. So I want to look at these two themes today and consider what, what implications they have for us as followers of Jesus and as a church. So, very simple, two points. As followers of Jesus were to pursue humility, and as followers of Jesus were to pursue holiness. So, number one. As followers of Jesus were to pursue humility. This is 30 to 42. Um, now, if you notice, in this passage, Jesus isn't speaking to large crowds of people. He's speaking, in fact, it says he didn't want anyone to know, for in verse 30, for he was teaching his disciples. Right? Jesus wants to focus in on teaching his disciples, this is what it means to follow me. And he's doing this as they're on the road, on the way to Jerusalem, uh, which is sort of his, the, his destination, uh, where he would uh, be crucified and rise again. And one thing we see right from the beginning is that Jesus' followers were not naturally humble. In this first section, humility was not a lesson that they easily and quickly learned. Uh, even Jesus' closest followers who had been with him for the longest time still had a lot more to learn about humility. Uh, in fact, there are three times in Mark where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and be killed and then rise again. And you as my disciples are going to have to follow me on that road through suffering and then later glory. The disciples wanted a shortcut to glory and Jesus says, no, we're going to have to go. I'm going through suffering to glory and you're following me on that same road. And every time Jesus says this, one of Jesus' core disciples responds and shows that they have completely missed the point. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, I'm going to, first time he says, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again. And verse 32 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter said to Jesus, no, Jesus, you're wrong. 
you must not be, this is not right, this cannot happen. And here in chapter 9, uh, verse 31, is the second time Jesus reiterates the same plan, and this time John speaks up, verse 38, it's the only time John speaks up by himself in uh, the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus has to correct John, because John is also off track. And then in the next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus says the same thing in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, and guess who speaks up? James. Peter, John, James. Those were the three core disciples. Those were the three who got to go up on the mountain of transfiguration and see Jesus' glory. Those were the three who were sort of like the inner circle. They should have known it more than anyone else, and Mark is showing us that three times Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again, and this is the road you're following me on, and all three of them don't get it right away. It takes a long time for them to learn this lesson of humility that Jesus is telling them. Uh, so here in chapter 9, verse 33, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? Of course, Jesus knew what they had been discussing on the road. He wasn't ignorant, and of course, but they keep silent because they're embarrassed. It's exactly what the Pharisees did back in chapter 3 when Jesus asked the Pharisees a question they couldn't answer. They just kept quiet. And here Jesus' disciples keep quiet because he says, what were you discussing? And they realize, we, well, uh, we were arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> Do we really want to say that to our teacher? Now we might think that's a rather petty and foolish topic of conversation for Jesus' disciples, but in their culture, that conversation would have been very normal. So in the Jewish culture of Jesus' time, people were very conscious of status and rank. So if you had a dinner at your house, and you hosted a group of people, you would be very careful to think about who's going to sit in which seats. You want to make sure that you have the nicest seats or the seats closest to the host for the most distinguished and honored guests. That might be the ones who are most wealthy or most prominent or the priests in that culture or the scholars would have been seen as high, sort of having a high status. Uh, Slaves, children, the poor might just sit outside or sit on the floor. Uh, and that was just normal. That was very normal. Uh, and, and that was not just true in the Jewish culture. That just reflected the broader Greco-Roman culture, the Greek and Roman culture of the time. So one of the highest values in Greek and Roman cultures uh, in, in Greek and Roman culture was honor. Uh, and the love of honor was seen as a virtue. So here's the idea. The idea was, if you've accomplished something great, you should be recognized and praised for it. And so, boasting about yourself was seen as normal, natural, and necessary. So the Roman Emperor Augustus wrote out a long list of his accomplishments. It's 2,500 words. So that's like five single-space typed pages. Uh, and remember, this is the ancient world. People had to write this all out by hand. He had it posted all over the Roman Empire, listing all his accomplishments, all the gifts that he had given to different people, all of his military victories, all of his, you know, it, it would be sort of like putting up gold plaques all around your empire, listing your accomplishments. Right? Not, do, not doing it for somebody else, doing it for yourself. That was seen as fine. The emperor did it, and lots of other people followed suit. In fact, even in Capernaum, they found a, uh, what's called an honorific column. It's like a, 
uh, a monument that someone put up listing their greatness and their accomplishments. The love of honor was seen as a good thing. In fact, it was listed among uh, the virtues. But humility was not seen as a good thing. In fact, if you read Greek and, Ro Greek and Latin writings that have not been influenced by Christianity, none of them ever uses the word humility in a positive sense. The word humility was associated with failure, shame, being crushed or debased. Um, and the same was true of servanthood. So the Greek philosopher Plato, one of the most famous philosophers, wrote, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone else? So the idea was being a servant is inherently undignified and demeaning. You, you could never be happy as a servant. Now, you might have to be a servant because that's the class you were born into, or that's the only thing you can do to survive in life. You might have to humble yourself before and bow for, before a king, because if you don't respect the king, the king can kill you, right? So people would recognize that it was necessary at times, but it was never seen as a positive virtue, never seen as something you would voluntarily choose. So what Jesus said in verse 35 was totally unexpected and countercultural. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He sort of flipped this whole thing on its head. And this teaching of Jesus has revolutionized how people think for the last 2,000 years. I mean, think about it. If someone today says, that person is so humble. That person is such a servant. In the ancient world, that would have been an insult. But today, it's a compliment. And why is it a compliment? Because of the influence of Jesus and his teachings in passages like this, and especially his example of humility. He didn't just teach about humility, he lived it out. You see, the early Christians looked at Jesus and they said, here's the greatest man who ever lived. Here's the son of God himself, and he chose to give up his status for the good of others. He willingly endured shameful rejection and mocking and death on the cross for the benefit of us. Therefore, the Christians reason, true greatness must not be about seeking honor for oneself, but rather true greatness must be about humble service to others. And that idea has changed the world so much, I mean, it's changed the definition of the word humility. Again, it was never used in a positive light before Jesus, in Greek or Latin writings. And now, people all over the world recognize humility as a, as a virtue, as a good thing. And so, so even today, right, even people, and that's, even, that's not just true of Christians, right? Even people who don't read the Bible or don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus would recognize that being humble and servant hearted is a good thing. And the reason why is because of the influence of Jesus on our culture that has lasted even long after many people uh, know, are, are even, even, when, even when people are not uh, believers in Jesus themselves, right? It's a, it's a value that people still recognize that was a seed that was planted by Jesus. If you want to read more about this, you can search online for an article entitled How Christian Humility Upended the World. 
It's by an Australian guy uh, named John Dixon. Uh, some of what I've just shared is based on that article. Just, it's not real long, but it just sort of gives a sense of this was a radical transformation. However, we recognize humility as a virtue. We say that servant-heartedness is a good thing, but I think it's still hard for us to put it into practice. Amen. Right? Just like Jesus' first disciples, it took them a long time to learn this lesson. And it's not a lesson that comes easily to us either. Uh, so what does it mean to pursue humility? Well, one thing to remember is that humility doesn't mean hating ourselves. Humility is not beating ourselves up for our past failures. One person said humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In other words, becoming more aware of God, more aware of God's presence, more aware of God's will, more aware of other people and their needs, uh, more attentive to them, less self-conscious, less constantly comparing ourselves to others, and less insistent on always getting our own way. That's the direction that humility is pointing us. Now, what does humility look like practically? Jesus gives a couple of pictures here. Verse 36 37. Humility looks like caring for the least instead of vying to be the greatest. Jesus took a child, called him into the middle of the room, and took him in his arms. And he told his disciples, receive one like this child in my name. Now, you might say, what, okay, what was the point of that object lesson? Uh, in the ancient world, children were not seen as innocent or pure. They were also not idolized and made the center of attention. And no one back then believed that if you just let children do whatever they want, they'll magically grow up to become mature adults. So the ancient world didn't believe any of those falsehoods that modern culture assumes about children. Uh, the ancient world had a much more realistic view of children, uh, although at times the ancient world was very harsh toward children. Uh, so children were seen as weak, dependent, and vulnerable. Unable, unable to protect themselves or provide for themselves. Right? That's just a fact. Children were also seen as willful, ignorant, and impressionable in constant need of correction and instruction. Okay? So this is the context in which Jesus takes a child into his arms. Right? The normal reaction would not be, how cute. Right? Oh, isn't that so oh, I want to take a picture of Jesus and the little child in his arms. No, that's not how people would have thought. What most people would have thought is, Jesus, you're an adult male, and you're a religious teacher. Children are the lowest on the totem pole of status. Why are you associating with them and wasting your time with them? You should be spending your time with the other adult males who are important in society. Right? That's what people would have thought. But Jesus says no. Jesus takes the child in his arms. And what, we, what he was saying to his disciples is you need to receive those who are weak and dependent and vulnerable just like this child. Who can't protect, who can't protect themselves, who can't provide for themselves, who won't make you look great, but who are important in God's see, in the ancient world, the ancient world did not believe that every child was important in the eyes of God. 
The ancient world believed that. Only some children, because of who else they were associated with, were valuable in the eyes of God. In fact, in the Roman world, infants would often just be left out to die if, if it was a girl and the parents wanted a boy, or for various other reasons. And Jesus said, no, every child is important to God. That's true in a physical sense. New Testament says Christians should take care of vulnerable children, orphans, the poor, widows. But I think it's also true here in a spiritual sense that Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers, should be especially careful to look out for less mature or more vulnerable Christian believers within the community of faith. And that's the warning Jesus gives in verse 42. Um, where he says, don't cause one of these little ones, the idea is sort of a little, a young person who believe in me to sin. So Jesus is talking about sort of younger or less mature or more vulnerable believers in him. And Jesus warned his disciples, don't do anything that would trip them up. Don't do anything that would harm or injure their faith. Do all that you can to serve and strengthen fellow believers in Christ, especially those who are hurting or vulnerable, or weak, or, or could easily fall off the bandwagon. Don't despise them. Don't ignore them. Don't be harsh with them, and don't ever take advantage of them. Humility looks like caring for the least instead of trying to be the greatest. Also, humility looks like rejoicing in others' successes instead of envying them, verses 38 to 41. Verse 38 John says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, Jesus, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now notice John doesn't say, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you. He says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus says, no. The man was acting in Jesus' name, which implies that he was relying on Jesus' power and authority. And ironically, this man was succeeding at what last week we saw Jesus' disciples had failed to do. And they're trying to stop him. And Jesus says, no, no. Don't stop him. He's not speaking evil about me. He's not against us. Just because he isn't following you doesn't mean he isn't following me. There's a similar incident in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses has just appointed 70 elders as sort of official leaders of the people of Israel, and uh, they all start prophesying for a while, and then there's two other guys named Eldad and Medad, who just were sort of regular guys, and they start prophesying in the Israelite camp, and Joshua, who's Moses' assistant, goes to Moses and says, Moses, stop them. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. Don't stop them. Right? Moses didn't need to be sort of the only important person, the only leader, the only teacher in his community. Uh, you know, sometimes I think Christians can have a tendency to speak negatively about churches or ministries that they're not personally involved in. Uh, especially if another church or ministry seems to be more successful than their own in one way or another. But Jesus says, be careful, because that can be a sign of pride. Being more concerned that people are part of your group 
than that people are following Jesus and ministering to others in his name. Now, there are times when it's appropriate to warn others if another church is teaching false doctrines or promoting harmful practices, but Jesus warns us, don't despise or discourage other people who are following Jesus as best they know and ministering in his name just because they're not part of our group. The essential thing is not whether they're following us, but whether they're following Jesus. So humility looks like rejoicing in other successes instead of envying them, and as well as caring for the least instead of vying to be the greatest. Okay, so that's the first point. As followers of Jesus, we're to pursue humility, and that's a couple of practical ways that it looks like. But second point, verses 43 to 50, as followers of Jesus, we're also to pursue holiness. Now, uh, that word holiness in the Bible simply means being set apart for God and for God's purposes. Uh, and at the end of this passage, Jesus uses the image of salt in verses 49 and 50. Uh, now, salt was good for many things in the ancient world. Of course, we think of salt as adding flavor. Uh, but in the ancient world, it was even more important that it was a preservative. Salt would preserve meat and fish from rotting. Uh, in a world without refrigeration. But sometimes, salt from the Dead Sea would get mixed up with gypsum. Now, gypsum is the main ingredient in plaster and in chalk. And so when the salt would get mixed up with gypsum, it would taste stale. I mean, it would taste like salt plus chalk. I mean, who wants to put that on their food? Right? Nasty. Gross. Um, and Jesus, it wouldn't be good for anything anymore. And so Jesus wants us as his followers to be like pure salt. Not salt plus chalk. Uh, have salt in yourself, Jesus says in verse 50. Verse 49, he talks about being salted with fire. That might be a reference to being purified through trials. It's not totally clear, I think, what verse 49 means. But that's my best guess is that it has some reference to being purified through trials, which is a theme in other parts of the New Testament. Okay? So, uh, so that's a, sort of an, an image of holiness, being pure salt that can do its job in the world. Uh, now, in verse 43 and following, verses 43 to 48, Jesus makes some very strong statements about pursuing holiness, right? They might sort of startle you at first, especially if you haven't heard these before. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. I say, what does that mean? That's pretty strong. Now, in Jesus' time, people would often speak about actions by referring to the part of the body that carried out those actions. So hands would refer to whatever we do. Feet would refer to wherever we go. Eyes would refer to whatever we look at or desire, sort of whatever we gaze upon, right, where we focus our desires. So Jesus wasn't telling his followers to literally cut off their limbs or gouge out their eyes if they had been led into sin in one way or another. In fact, the Old Testament strictly prohibited any cutting or mutilating of one's own body. And Jesus uh, gave no indication that God's will in that respect had changed. The Bible, in the Bible, the human body is seen as a sacred vessel uh, to be treated with respect, to be treated with honor. Okay, so Jesus isn't, saying, isn't encouraging us to sort of literally hack off your hand if you do one thing wrong with it. But Jesus was giving a graphic picture of the importance of surrendering every aspect of our life to him, 
whatever we do with our hands, wherever we go with our feet, whatever we desire with our eyes. So here's the point. Following Jesus is not something that we can do on the side. It's not a hobby that we can pick up and leave at our convenience. Jesus wants his disciples to know following me is a serious matter. And sometimes it requires some serious sacrifices. Don't take it lightly. You know, in countries where Christians are frequently persecuted, people think twice before saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. Because they realize that there's probably going to be a cost if they openly declare themselves a follower of Jesus. In America, I think sometimes people are very casual. Oh, are you a Christian? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm a Christian, just like I'm, just like I'm an American, just like I'm, you know, from this town, just like I'm a Yankees fan, just like I like to play, like to go for walks on the weekend. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is much more serious than that. Right? Before you, if you're thinking about getting married to someone, you would think twice. You wouldn't just make a casual decision of something that would affect the rest of your life. Right? Jesus is saying this is far more important even than the most binding human and long-term human commitments. And in these verses, Jesus is saying sometimes following him requires uh, sacrifices, right? Hands, feet, eyes, they're all good things, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, health, comfort, safety, all these are good things. We all like all these things, but Jesus says those aren't the most important things because those things can't last forever. Your relationship with God is more important than your health, your comfort, your safety, your freedom, or your happiness on earth. You know, a wise surgeon will occasionally amputate a limb in order to save a life if the limb has become so deeply infected that it can't be healed in any other way. And if that's true on a physical level, Jesus is saying that can be true on a spiritual level. Sin, whether it's lust or greed or pride or uh, bitterness, can grow like a cancer if it is not checked. And Jesus is saying that as his followers, if we are committed to following him, we need to take decisive action at times to cut out anything that would hinder or prevent us from freely following Jesus and entering into the life that he offers. You know, I think this is a principle that's actually pretty well understood in the addiction recovery community. Okay? And, uh, Sometimes people can get so deeply entrenched in an addiction, say to drugs or alcohol, that the first step toward health and freedom is leave everything else behind, go to detox, and then go to a rehab program. It's very inconvenient, it's very unpleasant, it's very painful, but it's better than dying of an overdose. And Jesus is saying that principle is not only relevant to people who are inclined towards drugs and alcohol, becoming addicted to substances. Jesus is saying that principle is relevant to every one of us, no matter what variety of sin we are most tempted by. 
It's far better, Jesus says, to give up some good things on earth than to end up enslaved to our sin and in hell for eternity. See, according to Jesus, this life on earth is not all there is. We are all on the path toward one of two ultimate destinations, Jesus says. Life in the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns or hell, a place of darkness and anguish where people never stop rebelling against God. Jesus is saying we're all on the path toward one of those two destinations. Now the word translated hell in these verses is the word Gehenna. Occasionally that word referred to, a, uh, sorry, originally that word refers to a valley that's outside the city of Jerusalem. At some points in Israel's history, some horrible things had happened in that valley, including children who were sacrificed to a pagan god, Moloch. Later on, the pagan altars were destroyed and the valley became a garbage dump where trash and animal carcasses were burned. It was literally a place where the fire never went out and where the worms never died. And over time, that valley, particularly between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that valley became sort of an image of spiritual ruin and eternal punishment for wickedness, for those who persisted in rebellion against God. So verse 48, Jesus quotes from the last verse of the prophet Isaiah, which referred to the bodies of the men who have rebelled, the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, and it says, their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. Now, this is a scary image, but remember that the point in the context of this passage, the point is Jesus is spurring us on toward holiness, toward pursuing what God has for us. And he's reminding us this is a serious matter. Now, some of you might be struggling with Jesus' words here about sin and hell. Right? It's not a popular idea in our world today. Maybe you're thinking, this sounds harsh, or there's part of me that doesn't want to believe this, doesn't want to accept this. But think about it. If someone tells you something that initially sounds harsh and offensive to you, what might be the first thing that you do? The first thing you do might be to ask, who is it that is speaking to me? Now, in some cases you might say, this person who just said something harsh and offensive doesn't know me, doesn't really care about me, they don't know what they're talking about, they must be wrong, I'm not going to bother to listen to them. But what if it's someone who knows you very well, and who has demonstrated that they love you very much. And who has every reason to know exactly what he's talking about. Look at who is speaking here. The same Jesus who says, who warns about hell, is the one who said in verse 31, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. It's the same Jesus who took a child in his arms who humbled himself and became a servant to the last and the least and the lowest. And Jesus didn't just give up his hand or his foot or his eye for us. He gave up his life. He gave his whole body for us on the cross. You see, Jesus might ask us to surrender, to not go to a certain place anymore. Or not do certain things anymore. Or 
something else, give up something else that is hard for us to give up. But he didn't just give that up. He gave up everything for us and for our salvation on the cross. And he didn't just suffer physically on the cross. The Bible says Jesus suffered the pains of hell. In other words, the judgment that we deserve for our sin against God. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus made a way for our sin to be destroyed without us being destroyed. You see, he made a way for us to be forgiven, and he made a way for us to be holy, to be set apart for God and for God's purposes in the world, and to be able to enter into his holy presence for all eternity. Verse 50, Jesus says, concludes this passage by saying, have salt in yourselves, in order, in other words, pursue holiness, and be at peace with one another. In other words, pursue humility. See, brothers and sisters, let's pursue humility and let's pursue holiness by keeping our eyes on Jesus, our humble Savior and our holy Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for your humility. Lord, your teaching about humility and ultimately your example about humility that truly transformed the world. Lord, even transforms how we think about humility today even though we may not even realize it. Lord, we pray that we would take to heart your call to humility. Pray that we would humble ourselves before you and before one another. That we would look out for those who are weak and vulnerable. Those who are, those who won't make us look great. That we would serve with sincerity of heart and genuine love. And we pray that we would pursue holiness. Lord Jesus, you, uh, you gave your life as a perfect sacrifice. A holy sacrifice. You were completely devoted to God and to his purposes. Lord, help us to take your call to holiness seriously. Lord, forgive us if we have thought too casually or trivialized what it means to follow you. Lord, lead us on the path toward holiness because you are the one that we look to. We pray that as a church, Lord, we pray that we would grow in both of these ways. We pray that we grow in humility. Pray that we grow in holiness. Lord, that we would see your Holy Spirit working among us in both of these ways. We pray that the world would see who you are as you work among us. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.